Thank you all for coming. Uh, at least there's going to be a few of you that are interested in more than just turnlocks, rivers, and rolling plains. And we're going to speak a little bit about our beloved Veritas Mountains. And we really uh, have, I think, a gentleman that really, I think, was, was absolutely amazing. And I felt like I almost walked in his footsteps, walked in set in his flower garlanded parts that they talked about. And so I hope that our program on this gentleman, that you will, at the end, have as much respect for him and appreciation for what he accomplished as I have. Fred was actually, he was born in Switzerland in 1866. And at the age of three, he moved to the United States with his parents. And he lived most of his early life in Wisconsin, there was he was educated and actually started out to be a teacher. And more in the, in the uh, geography area. And anyway, he eventually, in 1890, moved to Montana and worked for the Yegan Brothers at the store in Ubeck, Montana. Now that's interesting because we think of the Yegan Brothers down here, but they actually started up at Ubeck and that neck of the woods themselves. Then Freddie eventually moved to Billings, just a short few years later. And at that time, he uh, worked to continue to work for the Yegan Brothers, went into business for himself, but he went a lot more. He was a trustee for years and years for the school district and actually served as the president for a, a number of terms for the building school systems. He also served two terms as a treasurer for the county and four terms as clerk of court. And he was involved in many, many organizations. And he did have a family. He had two children, and Nellie, <coughs> Nellie was his wife, he married in 1895. They had two children, Margaret and Doris. And we have with us today a great granddaughter. Travel all the way from Washington to be here with us today. And I know that if her mother could, she would have been here also. Her mother is a tremendous author. And the business manager is Beth. And this is an earlier publication. This is the third, I think she's got a fourth publication now on Yellowstone Treasure. Fifth. And I mean, if you don't go buy one of those out there, you're missing the boat. She really knew Yellowstone National Park. Thank you so much, Pat. You know, as, as a native uh, originally from Switzerland, it's not surprising that he actually fell in love with the Veritas Mountains, because that was his Swiss America. He knew the mountains very well early on, because he moved to Billings. But it wasn't until actually 1907 when he actually they said, 
really made an extended trip back into the remoter sessions. And as you can look at that, you can appreciate with that type of training was that they were like hand. With those type of backpacks that weren't even backpacks, they were 70 pound packs in their bags loaded over the shoulder. And they hiked, and I'll tell you all about that. One of the members, and he also took that last picture, was Alfred Baumgartner. How many have heard the name Alfred Baumgartner? I hope many of you have. He's a famous photographer here many, many years ago, Corson Billings. This is how they traveled in 1907 from Billings up to East Rosebud Lake and back again. So it wasn't just a two-hour trip in a car like what we take. Can you appreciate what it would have been like? And that's how they got over to the other side. They stayed with a gentleman, Mr. Armstrong. This is his cabin. Here's Fred right over here. They stayed in that cabin that night. And there's two rooms in that cabin. There's a front, and then there's a back. And the women stayed in the back. And the men stayed in the front. Because like Mr. Armstrong says, there's no hanky-panky going on in my cabin. The next day, they made their start to track up beyond the, the silver spray of Snow Falls. And anybody has ever seen that, it's, it is quite a beautiful sight. They went on then into what they referred to as the Flower Garlanded Parks and the Veritas. And from there, they went on up to a peak that we eventually was named after Fred and Adnan. And they climbed that peak and then went on. And the sights they thought was beautiful. These dark blue gem-like lakes and the glistening glaciers they really enjoyed. But unfortunately, the next day, as they crossed over the divide to go into the park fork, they had a snowstorm. And they eventually walking, or immediately walking on four inches of snow. But they went on along that divide, and they came out where they looked down into the Clarksport Valley. And even though that doesn't look like it to you and I, but that's Pilot Mendez Peak as you look at it from the north. We always see it from a different location, right? And then he turned and looked to the north, and he could see Granite Peak. And Granite Peak then drew him to its sides time and time again. They went on down the valley, back to East Rosebud Lake, and they were clear up on this neck of the woods, and they went all the way back down again. The next year, they decided that instead of going by wagon, they'd go by train over to Red Lodge and then over the hill. They had to walk with no trail over to East Rosebud Lake, and then eventually up Arch Creek, which wasn't even named at that time. And then they went on further because he wanted to get a closer look at Granite Peak. And then they continued up onto the ridge and moved across and back down to Mystic Lake. As they get up higher up on the, uh, uh, the drainage in Arch Creek, you could look right down into the valley, and the trail itself is down in here in the bottom. And they could see the train where they had actually walked the year before. And as they looked north, they said, we got to get to the top of those mountains. There are two more 12,000-foot peaks that he was going to climb on that particular trip. 
and they could look down into what Van Hill says, and we'll talk more about him later, as to the turquoise lakes and the Veritooth also. And I think Brent Lake is the most turquoise colored lake in the Veritooth. If there's got another one, tell me about it. And when he got up on top of Mount Eagle, he could look across and he got a good close look at Brant Peak. And then he, when he got as far as the summit then of the other peak, he looked across and he said, oh my gosh, that east ridge and the north face looked pretty frightful to him. So the, the next trip up, uh, they went up in 1910, they left from East Coast of Lake, they went up Armstrong Creek, which was Shannon Creek at the time, uh, past Blue Lake, up Phantom Creek, and then off of the divide, and made an attempt to grant a peak. Unfortunately, they weren't successful. But shortly thereafter, which according to the picture was about uh, 1913, that he met up with a gentleman that was named uh, John Brunger. And here's Fred. And they made an attempt at Grand Peak themselves. They then, at that point, went up Arch Creek and they found the arch. And just by accident, they looked back and, and here's John standing under the arch. Now, it doesn't really look like much of an arch, but I'll tell you what, if you've ever been there, and they're standing under that arch, partway up on it, and you look down through that, it is quite inspiring to be able to be there. It really is. They not only did some of the mountain climbing, but uh, one of the times they went up uh, the West Rosebud. I took this picture from the other side of the valley rather than on the trail because it shows that beautiful waterfall. That waterfall has been there ever since long ago. And the dam had no effect on it. The dam is in that picture. They went up past Mystic, Island Lake, Silver, and now up to Grasshopper Glacier. And as you can see in the distance, the other peaks. The um, Grasshopper Glacier at that time had massive, massive amounts of grasshoppers in it. And so they, almost on a regular basis, they went up there. And even this picture was taken, we don't know exactly when, but that uh, showed a very good example of what uh, that looked like. They came back around um, and dropped back down into uh, the drainage uh, on that track, back to East Rosebud Lake. And then another track, and we're not showing all of them, but we'll show a few of them. In 1922, and this is the first picture that we have of Mr. Banfield, we'll talk about later. But uh, that 1922 trip was quite a deal. They decided that instead of the, the east side and the north side, I'm going to try to climb that south face around, couldn't make it, so he went up to this V-shaped crotch notch up there and decided that that's where I will make the attempt. It was unsuccessful, and on the way back, he turned around, catapulted a hundred or more feet down into one of these features down here, we don't know which one, but he survived. And that's not the only close call he had in his life. Anyway, they went on back to Grasshopper um, Glacier, then they went on to Cook City, and they went back then by what they referred to as the Moose Haunted Lakes 
uh, the heart's work. And he said that the, he thought the moose were more dangerous than bears, but there was other animals. And this is up the bone out. And I was sitting on one end of the lake, and here these nanny and her kid walked right around me, real close, walked right up, right above Wade, and as he threw that lure out there, they watched it, and when he pulled it back, they watched it again, and he did that on cast after cast, and finally the nanny, she says, I'm bored, I'm leaving, and the kids, it's just like he said, hey, come on, wait, throw it once more, it's just for me. He's just looking right down and says, come on, come on, do it. Anyway, he, he loved the wildlife up there too. And he actually turned out to be quite a photographer. I'm sure he learned that from uh, Alfred Longgarner. And he would get up in the morning before sunrise, and he'd sit out there and find a perfect spot and wait for the sunrise. And then one time he jumped back in the tent and said, guys, get out of here, get out of here. You can't believe this, this is a beautiful sunrise this morning. And uh, this happens to be a large creek. And he said, you wait, you see these pictures I've got, he said. And uh, so anyway, many of the trips that started off from East Rosebud Lake, and this is one of the earlier pictures of the lodge, when it was, uh, I think it was a celebration and when it was actually finished. But the Forest Service, um, several employees became interested in climbing Granite Peak. And so Fred organized a trip with the Forest Service and other people, and they took off from East Rosebud Lake with horses up onto this plateau, okay? And the horses went back, they went on past Tempest and down, and then they stayed that night at what they called Avalanche Lake at that time. It's now not Avalanche Lake, it's Lowry Lake. But they decided, okay, who's going to go where? Fred took his group and went on around, and the three foresters, they went up to the top on the East Ridge. So on August 29th of 1923, Elder Scotch, Whitham, and Ferguson climbed Grand Peak for the very first time. And Fred, even though he wanted to have been the first one there, he never did look down at those folks. But one of the tracks, I just had to show you a couple of tracks. If any of you have been in that country at all and have hiked much, you'll bring a great appreciation for them. Here's Fred. I guess I'll go back here. Wait a minute. Okay. Here's Fred. That's his daughter, Margaret. And here's Senia. And the camp, Senia. Up on the West Fork is named after Senior Grunfuss. And uh, this is where they took off at uh, a lake just right below Timberline, at Timberline Lake. And then they, they went up and on top and climbed the uh, Silver Run Peak, which is 12,500 feet tall. And we'll go from there. They took off from Red Lodge, Camp Senior, Timberland Lake, Silver Run Peak. And then back down to, how many remember Rachel Lodge? Anybody remember? Yeah. The few white hairs around, and even then, like not. And you remember it, that's yeah, it. <laughs> okay. And uh, 
And from there, they didn't have a car because there was no road. They went ahead by foot, walked all the way up over the top where we have a highway, and turned back down to Hickhouse, Beartooth Lodge, or uh, no, excuse me, Johnson Sawtooth Ranch, and then on down to Deep Lake. And then they eventually went back up to Hickhouse Place, and they moved that cabin up, it's now called Top of the World Store. And uh, from there, he went on up to Crazy Lake, trying to find it. It was a, nine, a map of lake on a 1918 map of the Forest Service. They didn't find it. There were too many lakes. They got lost. Decided to go back down, little glitch there, back down to the Clark's Fork and then over to Cook City. I mean, look at the track that they made. A lot of people think that they walked just on a, on a trail for a few days down the east road, but lake, they've done it. How would you like to make that track? up and down over those peaks. And then they went up, hey, Grasshopper Glacier. They always had to go to Grasshopper Glacier, then Lake Abundance, and then on down the Stillwater. That trek, 13 days, I've gone on Google and worked on it very closely twice, and it comes up just right at, or a little over 200 miles of walking. Okay, and 30,000 feet of elevation change, climbing those peaks and up and down again. This is what Johnson's camp looked like, reasonably close to that period of time. This is what the south of uh, the deep lake looks like, from up above looking down. And here they are facing the booths. And that is the, uh, the steps there at the, uh, uh, at the store at Cook City. And I'm going to go through one more track with it. And uh, they went down the year before to the Barracuda Ranch, right? Well, they, this time they decided to start off at the Veritas Ranch. They went up to Stillwater, wounded men, and got carried out to Lake Tincho, camped the night, and wow, five inches of fresh snow in the morning. But you know, it didn't really slow them up. They climbed every peak from all the way. People follow the trails, right? Well, they climbed all the peaks from there over to the city on that trek. And then, well, of course, we've got to go to Grasshopper Glacier. You first got to stop off at Shaw's Camp at Goose Lake, right? And so here they meet up with a, a gentleman by the name of Norman Clyde. Clyde, they referred to as a professional mountain climber. He was from California. And uh, so I said, he, he wanted to climb Granite Peak. Uh, no problem. Let's just jump over and climb Granite Peak then. So, uh, they then made the second successful ascent in 1926 of Granite Peak. And, you know, can you imagine all the treks and the whatever they made? Well, they weren't on down uh, to the range, but they didn't go all the way down the range. They wanted to go up to St. John's Peak, which don't even not show on any maps anymore. Over the flower garden, you have to see that, eventually passing away some back on the Earthquake. That's just in one little trick, okay? Not only was he that type of an individual as far as what he was accomplishing in, on his uh, expeditions, but he created one of the most phenomenal maps that you'll ever see. He used a pantograph, and I remember he used a pantograph. Oh my gosh, no hands? Well, I don't think you're anybody in here 90 years old. I know Jim's 85 almost, but anyway, uh, that was what they used to use for 
changing the scale uh, from one map to another. And this particular part of the map was the center of the Montana exhibit in the 1930 World Fair. And later there, after that, and uh, 19, uh, between after 1922, he finished the portion around Hamilton Lake, part of the Tetons, he finished it up later on there. And now that map has been refurbished, and uh, it says on a beautiful table that's made by John Tobish, right? And uh, that uh, it's a phenomenal accomplishment as far as I'm concerned. He, with a jigsaw, cut out all of the pieces of layers that matched the contours and nailed them down. And then after he got all done, he would then use clay and he would then mount the clay over the top of it and then work that all out and then eventually paint it. It's a beautiful product. And so if you ever get a chance to get to the Museum of Libertas, you've got to go see that. And our executive director of that museum is right here, and I think Penny you ought to stand up. Come on. <laughs> I didn't show from the time we got the map back in about 2008 and whatever, but uh, anyway, uh, it's on permanent display, and I think it's phenomenal. Uh, well, oh, oh, oh. Oh, you carry away here. Okay, unfortunately, in 1928, life was becoming short due to disease. Fred did not get a chance to do anything in the mountains except through his memories. And in that fall, he passed away. The first thing they did, they formed a Fred and Nanette group and an association, and they named that mountain peak after him. And uh, uh, as you can see, the mountain peak right here, modern Nanette, south of Turkey, and it was the first one of the ones that they climbed on that first trip. And so that's probably one of the reasons they selected it. And, they had a dedication. They were going to put a plaque up there. And uh, they had a dedication. And uh, several gentlemen had some really nice words to say. Mr. Ferguson spoke first, and he was the first supervisor at the time. And then Mr. Tanzel wrote later. And he said that you can't know Fred without having bonds of steel. He was respected by everybody, including the rich, but he was literally worshipped by the poor. And especially if they were farm born, they were really attached to him. And they had such a liking for Fred. He has more friends than anybody in Yellowstone County. And when they formed that organization, and they made this plaque, and it was unveiled by George Frederick Alseth, his five-year-old grandson. The plaque they talked about being was going to be on the uh, on the top of Modern Avenue. They made a couple trips up there. They decided, no, I don't think we're going to be able to do that. And so they uh, decided 
maybe we better put it in a different, little different location. And they took it out to the lower small lake and his close friends and mounted it on the rock. And here's uh, uh, some of the friends. This is Mr. Ferguson right here. And uh, some of the stories we got from David Bumper's son, and we learned a lot from him and a lot of other sources. They um, uh, wrote a tribute, and this is where this William Banfield comes in. They wrote a tribute to him. And uh, it was really an exceptional tribute. The front cover was by Bon Gardner, and it showed the, uh, the Snow Lake as well as the peak itself, and that was a beautiful tribute. Unfortunately, years later, the plaque came down, and Forest Service says, we've got to move that. And so they said, okay, let's find a place for it. It was brought down by Wayne uh, McLean out of Red Lodge, and they thought, well, let's put it at the upper end. Or maybe we should put it at the lower end looking up. And that was where the decision was finally made. There was a rededication on August 22nd of 2010, and no one was more excited about it than Jeff Gildahouse, who was the principal person in charge. There was one of the speakers was also uh, right here with us here today, as well as with, with Janet, and that's Beth Swan, right there. And here's Jeff, and Charlie is, was the Service supervisor at the time. Nobody was more excited and Jeff, look at that excitement on his face. Of course, I was just kind of like, you know, struck. But here's the plaque that was remounted. The new boat covers were made by uh, Roman Kelser out of Park City. And we had a little refreshments afterwards. Thanks to some of the ladies. Katie was gentleman Tony's wife. And then eventually, we got to manage to put up uh, an interpretive sign, I guess, uh, which with Fred on it and a couple other pictures, and one of which was from the Bowles. This was uh, Charles Fritz, famous artist, painted that picture. And here's uh, Jeff unveiling that, and that's the program. We thank you for coming.